0: Australia and welcome to the stand up Australia podcast stand up sits down with a contrarian conversation rebutting the mainstream narrative each week we discuss and deconstruct the most relevant news stories in Australia and around the world that you may have missed during the past week and we separate the bs and the propaganda so you can make better decisions about which way you want to go politically and personally today on the show after our good news story a rare good news story Our first story of the day, thought you were stretched for cash? The power companies have more pain in store with a 25% increase coming to a bill near you. Number two story, an Aussie comedian brought in front of the Human Rights Commission over an offensive joke, how far is too far in comedy in the new world order? Our third story, thousands of Aussies want compensation for their very rare vaccine injuries from the safe and effective COVID jabs. Are the floodgates about to open? And our final story for the day, Britain has a dodgy ticker problem and it ain't just the oldies that are suffering. What is going on and what is causing this tsunami of disease? We'll be joined this week by Michael Collotti, who was a candidate for AusFeds in the last election. Michael lives in Perth and he's a father of two and a grandfather of four. What else have you got to tell us about you, Michael?
1: Oh, gee, about me. Well, I I, um, spent a bit of time going around with Peter Harris when uh, when I met him here in Perth and talking about the events of that time that got us a lot of people that prior to that point were, weren't were particularly interested in politics. I mean, Peter and I were, but, yeah, and, and everyone's political today and the, the more the merrier. So, yeah, that's, that's me and I continue to be involved in the background as we look for ways to have some influence at the next election in a couple of years' time.
0: Yes, yes, excellent. Thanks, Michael. And we have Michael to thank for our second guest today, Brioni Rank. Now, it's very unfortunate that we do tend to focus on bad news stories on this podcast, um, mostly because bad news is generally what we get. So it's really nice to be able to do a good news story for once. Now, Brioni has been developing an app for the past three years. It's called Incaberry. And, Michael, uh, would you like to tell us what uh, – would you like to tell us why you wanted to have Brioni on the podcast to talk to our listeners?
1: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm uh, in, a, in a new relationship with a, a wonderful plant-based vegan woman who's converted me into that lifestyle over the last um, six months or so.
2: Good to be.
1: Yeah, look, um, the, the health benefits certainly stack up. But we went to the vegan festival in Perth, uh, must have been a couple of months ago now, and bumped into Brioni at her stall she had there launching berry, and it's just fascinated me ever since there wasn't a lot of information so I just had to get Brioni on the show to talk about it more mainly just because I want to know more about it (laughs) but I think it's important Um, and it also plugs into something Peter Harris spoke about a lot when we were talking and that is food security and one of the things that Peter had talked about extensively was community garden projects and social gardening projects, whether that be in schools or nursing homes or any number of places. People should be far more plugged into growing their own food. And when I bumped into Brihoni, it sort of just this light bulb went off. What I, what I imagine she's up to, which I think is brilliant, is connecting people that do want to grow things. You know, if you're great at growing garlic, you're not necessarily going to grow much in the way of potatoes or carrots or whatever. And I guess I should stop talking and let Brioni tell us what it's all about because it sounds yeah. fascinating.
0: Well, I I am really, really intrigued to hear more. So, Brioni, take it away. Tell us about Incaberry and what you've been up to.
3: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on here as well today, guys. Um, Well, Incaberry is basically it came from... I wanted to create something that would positively, like, contribute to the world. And I didn't necessarily know what it was going to be when I had that intention out there. But the idea for being came. very was actually before everything happened with COVID and the food security issues started arising. But I was personally looking for, like, grapes and watermelon in the Swan Valley area in Perth and travelling with my mum. And I realised how difficult it is for us to find local growers and support them directly. If it's not, if they're not on a main road and they don't have a sign up front, you can't really find them quite easily. Mm. And it just didn't really make sense to me um, because I know so many people that grow and have an excess of produce. And I wanted to create something that would make it easier for us to connect with them and for them to share their produce with us because they always have an excess and they want to share it with the world, but they don't have an easy way to do that. So that's sort of where the idea came from and from there, I realized, okay, let me look into it. Is there anything that exists like this that would, or that already does something like this? And I just couldn't find anything. And I got faced with the decision of, okay, do I want to just wait for somebody else to create something like this? Or should I maybe try and create it? And, um, yeah, I just decided, you know what? I, I have the time at the moment. I have the resources. Let me just start doing steps and see where it takes me. And I, so, yeah. I
0: love it. I love it. You saw a problem. You didn't. You didn't see a solution out there. So you thought, "What the heck? Why don't I try creating a solution?" It's real. This is really interesting to me. My my son <laughs> is currently partway through a uh, through a combined um, IT and engineering degree, and I've been saying to him for the last couple of years, "Look, next next break that you have, why don't you start working on an app that can be used in local communities where local people can list what they have and what they want, and and mm-hmm. then find each other." Is so great you've already you've already <laughs> doing it and it's so wonderful so so tell us you know how how far advanced is the project
3: so we're pretty much in the final stages of development now we're actually looking at launching this august so we're only a few months from launching now but it, it's felt like it's come very quickly but it has actually been like three years of work because there was a lot in designing and planning how it was actually going to work and the most effective and easiest way to do it so more people would want to use it and then, yeah, finding a development team to actually be building it because I, I wanted it to be done right. I didn't want it. I, I wanted it to be available to use all over the world. So I'm obviously launching it here in Australia, but ideally, no matter where you go in the world, you will be able to find local people that are selling their projects. So even if you're travelling, you know.
0: Mm, okay, so so this this app will be there. There are two groups of users, basically. There's the people who grow stuff and have a surplus, and and they're more than happy for for uh, for people to come and pay cash or trade, yeah. for, for what they've got. Yep. Yeah. And then there's people who who want grapes and watermelon in their area or any other kind of of. of uh, and is it is it solely produce? Uh, to start with. Uh,
3: we're including plants and flowers as well as well as yeah. honey and eggs, yep. um, Okay. And preserves. So we've got there's quite a lot of produce, but then there's obviously a few other things. Mainly, I was just focusing on the things that people create from home, yes. um, focusing primarily on the smaller like homes rather than like big farms that mass produce things because generally mm-hmm. they do wholesale. Um,
4: mm-hmm. But
3: yeah, because there is a big variety of things that people grow. I had quite a few requests for um, meat from like homesteading families, but that won't be included in the app, at least not initially. I think we'll start with the produce um, and then see how it progresses from there.
0: Absolutely tremendous, great! And so, how how can we follow the project? Uh, is there a website? Are you on social media? How how can people find out more and 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 be in the the vanguard to test it out when it launches?
3: Yeah, so we have a, a website is inkberry.app, so I-N-C-A-B-A-R-Y dot App. Um, and that's just a sign up form at the moment. But two weeks before we launch, we'll let everybody know we're about to launch. And then when we do launch, we'll send an email and a text message to everybody and like so they can download the app straight away. And um, we're on Instagram and Facebook as well, um, Inkberry app. On Instagram, I think it's inkberry.app. Yep. But, Yeah, okay. you'll
0: be able to find us on there. Terrific. So you're on the socials. This is this is great. Thanks so much, Michael, for uh for, for putting Pironi on our map. And again, it is oh, well it was,
1: it's very selfish. I have questions.
0: Yeah, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, Michael, look, so go ahead. Yeah.
1: So, like you say, there's big producers and and I'm assuming backyard producers, like people are growing a few veggies at home and want to swap them, you know, with their local people, which I think also has an aspect to it that grows community. Like I I have an uncle and he's always offloading cucumbers and capsicum and everything that's growing in his backyard. And he's always got too much. But, and, you know, he's a very social person, but there's a lot of older people that, I could imagine this being a social a way to connect socially as well, with other people in in their community. And but the one question that I did have is, how will you manage people's expectations around the quality of the produce and how it's grown, whether it's grown organically and those kind of things, um, yeah. when it's just coming from someone's backyard and perhaps you know.
3: Yeah. So there are different tags that people can put on their produce. Um, And then after, so like if it's organic, if it's spray-free, like certified organic, because there will be some certified organic suppliers on there as well. Um, And then from there as well, each user, because we're we're not doing paid advertising or being able to promote your shop on the app. It's all going to be based on your ratings. So if people are buying from you and they're not happy with the produce or it's not really what, it was sold as, then the ratings would reflect that, mm-hmm. and it'll be very transparent in that regard. So if you're selling something that's maybe not what you're advertising it as, then people will pick up on that. And I think with organic produce as well, you can taste the difference. Anyone that eats organic yeah. can taste the difference between organic and not organic.
0: Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it'll be
3: hard to kind of dupe those people, I think.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, th- This is absolutely fantastic. Um, we, we moved on to a, a rural acreage oh, about a year ago. We're getting our fruit, fruit trees up and going in our veggie garden. We're, we're blessed with um, really, really sweet and kind neighbours who've been at this for far longer than we have. And I know they are, they're currently dealing with a watermelon glut. They have more watermelons <laughs> yeah. than poker stick.
3: Yeah.
0: So we've been the the grateful recipients of you know big watermelons yeah. and our neighbors have been sort of you know palming them off or when i say palming them yeah. off like gifting them to people in the neighborhood which is absolutely yeah. fantastic but but i just love this idea that they they could just list on the app you know we've got watermelon come and mm-hmm. get our watermelon yeah and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Michael, I totally agree with the community building aspect of this. Um, yeah, that's that's such a such a strength. That you can actually uh, get people talking to others in their region when they yeah. go to go to a person's home to pick up their cucumbers or eggplant yeah. or potatoes or whatever they happen to to have yeah. a glass of, and this is this is how connections between people are made. Just love it. Yeah, All you right, start Michael. to like
3: meet your neighbors. It's and, um, yeah, that was part of it as well because. We're scared to knock on someone's door and ask if we can take a few lemons. But if they're on the app, you know that you can.
0: You
1: know, it's a. Yeah, permission. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: that's exactly right. This is great. Michael, uh, you, what did you, or do you want to add there?
1: No, I was just saying it's, it's interesting to go high tech, to go old school, you know, to connect okay. people to, you know, to swap, to swap a few bits and things that come out of their garden. Yeah. Uh, there's also something that Mitch and I were discussing last time I was on the podcast. It, it really appeals to me, the anti corporate side of things about taking business away from the from the big supermarkets and i'm sure you can imagine as you say your friends have got this watermelon glutton if they can't get rid of them they're just going to rot and i'm sure it gives them pleasure that people will take them and eat them
0: Yes. And then it's also up to people how they receive payments. So, you know, I can see people being willing to accept cash, being willing to accept a swap, maybe even, and this would excite me, you know, uh, maybe even accepting payments in silver or, or, or Bitcoin or some other kind of decentralized. Yeah, we're actually mon- going to
3: add in cryptocurrency payments. That's like one of my requirements that I wanted to develop is to add in.
0: They're not it's not going to be in the first release but it's something we'll be incorporating yeah yeah absolutely amazing or or perhaps even you know swap for labor so you know someone's got a mm-hmm. glut, got a glut of a particular food um but they also need their fence repaired so someone might be happy to 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 pay for their food by fixing the hole in the fence or whatever, whatever have you yeah absolutely superb so this is great good, good news stories is, yeah. is what we need and uh michael was that all your questions answered I think so
1: that's all the ones I have <laughs> so, I can't wait to see it and, oh,
0: uh, me, 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 too. Too. <laughs> me too I'm gonna to go follow you on all your on all your social channels <laughs> and, and eagerly await your launch absolutely brilliant so so after that good news <laughs> shall we shall we talk about this week's bad news what a there bummer all right here we go so our our first story for the day is about power bills and uh, this one is from the the groan the guardian um electricity prices to rise by up to a quarter in parts of australia after the energy regulator issues a market default decision so basically the australian energy regulator uh, is permitting power bills um to, to go up, but they also say that the, the bills would have gone up twice as fast if the government hadn't intervened. There was there's also a um this key part of this story that that I that particularly caught my eye. Yes, so the Albanese government came to office promising household power prices would fall by $275 on average by 2025. But now we're hearing that the AR has forecast increased tariffs of 40 to 50% late last year. All right. So, uh, Michael, Brioni, your thoughts on our first story, power bills going up?
1: I don't know what to say to that. I mean, in Western Australia, I don't know that it impacts us quite as much as it does on the East Coast because we have Not a gas, uh, policy here that reserves our gas um, for power generation for Western Australia, Well, I'm sure it will go up to some degree, but certainly not what you're facing in the eastern, eastern states. I mean, I'm, I am probably sound like a broken record, although you, you and I haven't spoken, Robin, but, you know, this is all goes back to the 80s for me when we privatised, you know, our local and our government generation, and now people are at the mercy of these big corporations. And you've been hearing for years how much the cost of wind and solar has been going down, and so why are these power bills going up. It just doesn't mm. make sense. You, you see so many lies in the media from all the players. Meanwhile, all the people that are sort of sitting at home and they need to stay warm, are Just you just got to pay through the nose or you're going to go cold. It's that simple. Yeah.
0: My, my understanding, um, at least on the East Coast is that there have been incredibly vast costs at rolling out the the transmission mm-hmm. networks that are required to take the power from the sites of solar and wind generation mm-hmm. to to the cities where they're needed. So so you know we're, we're essentially replicating the transmission network. and that mm-hmm. is my, my understanding is that, that that's a large part of where these uh, where these additional costs come from.
1: Yeah, I, I, I would have to beg off and so say I don't have sufficient knowledge to understand why these these prices are going up, but you can be sure that the people that sort of sit on the boards and the shareholders and the, the profit takers are not the ones missing out. It's the consumer that's going to be paying every time.
0: Yeah, indeed, indeed. I also find it uh, just beyond crazy that we pull our coal out of the ground and send it over mm-hmm. to China and then they build coal-fired power plants and used alcohol to generate electricity to make the stuff that they send back to us, you know, on the giant I, cargo ships that, that run I, off fossil fuel. And then we get to go, look at us, we're transitioning yeah. to a clean energy future. Well, yeah, actually we're just externalizing the the, the yeah. greenhouse gas emissions if you, you know, if you think that that's I, a problem.
1: I sat in a I sat in a briefing last week. Um with the company I work for, is currently building a gas plant in Western Australia. Mm. And um, there are a lot more in the pipeline, a lot more gas projects that are going to come on board. Mm. So this idea that sort of it's all shutting down, I mean, coal maybe, Mm. but there's a lot more gas to be built in this country. And consumers in, in Tokyo pay less for their gas than we do here. And that gas comes from here.
2: Western that Australia is, is
1: the biggest producer of energy in the world.
2: That is
0: absolutely extraordinary. So it costs less for them to buy the gas that has been, again, freighted over to them yeah. on yeah. fossil fuel-powered cargo ships. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Something's wrong with this, picture. Something is wrong with this yeah, picture. Something's
1: very wrong with this picture. Yeah, something's you know, very wrong with uh, this picture. It's the big corporates that make the bucks and they don't even pay a reasonable tax in this country.
0: Yeah. I think it's,
3: um especially like with everything that's going on, it's making us look for alternatives, you know, make us start to think, okay, we're so dependent on these bigger corporations and almost every house is running on electricity and like if these rates go up, everyone's nearly like affected. What are our other options? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah,
1: it's those other options that, that are questionable at best. I mean, I think, I, I couldn't quote the figures, but there's less than something like two, maybe 2% of the world's energy is generated by renewables at the moment. And what that has cost in the last couple of decades to achieve that, if you multiply that number, there's not enough money in the world to achieve 100% renewables. It's just not possible.
0: Well, as I understand it, sorry, go on.
1: Yeah, and when you look at electric vehicles, they weigh 60% more than an internal combustion engine vehicle that 60% gets dug out of the ground using fossil fuel-powered vehicles.
2: And
1: and the cost to mine those minerals and to replace the current world internal combustion engine fleet is not achievable within the next 100 years. Mm. There's there's just far too many lies being told. There's definitely a need to transition to better than fossil fuels. That's not in question but there needs to be a genuine conversation about how we do that. Currently, all the solutions that are being offered are commercial solutions that benefit the shareholders of the particular company advancing those solutions. They are not necessarily the best way to achieve the end goal, if you like. Mm-hmm.
2: And I think the, like
1: goal, the
3: problem yeah. as well is the bigger companies, they can see the threat. If there is somebody that comes up with like a really unique idea it's usually purchased before anyone hears about it. Mm. So that they can't talk about it, they can't share it, and and then that company continues to monopolize. Yeah,
2: yeah,
1: to do business, it's it's difficult to scale too. You know, there's so many, there's lots of good battery technologies out there. And the current battery technologies that we use, which are considered cutting edge, you know, they're probably 10 or 15 years old. It takes a very, very long time to commercialise new technologies to the scale that you need to put into millions of vehicles, if you like. You've got to build a factory. You've got to prove the technology. You've got to make it all work. And, uh, again, you know, there's definitely a need for us to get better, to move away from fossil fuels. That's not in question. But what is in question is a realistic time frame, and how do we manage it and what is experienced, you know, going back to the... Where we started this conversation that's what you're experiencing on the east coast that's the cost you're bearing mm. that that it's not being thought out properly it's, it it
0: clearly has not. It yeah. clearly has not been thought out properly. And I mean, we, we come back to the same question, don't we? Are we looking at incompetence? Are we are we looking oh, definitely at, yeah? Or <laughs> definitely. or well, th- this is this is really the key question, right? I mean, is it is it possible that those running the show could be so poorly informed that they don't grasp what? What you just said before, right? That, that that there is no roadmap, there is no no way of achieving the, the net zero by twenty fifty or whatever the hell. Is it possible that they that they don't know that? In which case, what the hell are they doing in the job? Um, no, they know it. They because, know
1: it. So it's, they, it's, they don't it's, respond to commercial realities. They're responding to you know polling, and they're responding to people protesting in the streets and giving them license to go ahead and do things that they know are not commercially viable. They don't care. They get they get paid their salary. The shareholders all get rewarded in the short term. And the consumer is now facing an additional 25% power bills, increasing their power bills, on top of what have you already had, something like 50 or 60%. Yeah.
2: That's the reality.
1: Someone pays. Someone pays for it all. Yeah,
0: yeah, and that's someone. Yeah. I mean, my my mum's ninety two and living on the pension. Those power bills make a heck of a difference to people on fixed yeah. incomes. Yeah. yeah, and 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 this is so. What I was kind of pointing toward before, Michael, was was we get to the Hanlon's razor question, right? Um, where's the line between incompetence and malice? <laughs> because if you if you know um, if, if if you're a senior. Um, a bureaucrat or a politician, and you know that this is not achievable, but you're pushing toward it anyway. Is that in, like that? That crosses the line for me. That's a, That's actual malice. You know, you you are willingly, willfully participating in in activities in policy uh, directions that are harmful to the country, to the people of the country that you're supposedly serving.
1: Yeah, you're right. I mean, ultimately, that's the question for government. Okay, what, what has gone wrong in our society over probably, let's call it 43 years, for lack of exact figures, in the 80s, the Western world was privatized. The banks bought all of the utilities. They bought the insurance companies, well, sorry, not the banks, the finance Wall Street, essentially, and yeah. they sold everything off. We sold off all of our publicly owned power generation insurance banks. Um, various other industries, were all sold. Now, they were sold to shareholders. So now it's the CEOs and the shareholders that have to make the money and make a return on their investment. Prior to that, power generation was something that the state did, paid its workers, it provided that power at a reasonable cost or whatever the cost of generation was to, mm. to build the assets and to maintain the power lines and all everything mm. else that went with it. So it's just maths. End of the day, you've got, you you had two things you had power generation and you had a customer. Now you have a shareholder in the middle who has to make a return. That effect over 43 years, 40 plus years, is that today we all are beholden to corporations. And at the same time as that's been going on, what you're talking about, Robin, is these corporations through lobbyists, through consulting firms through all the various ways that they access government now has control of the regulatory framework
2: mm-hmm. that
1: is meant to control them. The government yes. is meant the government is meant to work for you and me and make sure that companies are honest. Yep. And that doesn't happen anymore.
2: Yeah. The companies and the sense.
1: government are together yep. and the consumer yep. pays.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you've got regulatory capture, and essentially, I mean, you know, there's a word for what you're describing yeah. there. I mean, it's fascism, right? This is what yes. Mussolini yeah. said. It's it's yeah. a, the merger of of the corporation and the state, and people don't like to throw that word around except when it's being applied to, I don't know, oh, I, I drive around quite liberally, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. But or uh, well, corporatocracy at the you know yeah. uh, is is perhaps even be, because in a sense we don't really even have a functioning state anymore. It's, no, it's, we don't. Like, it's not like the state is in the is in the the lead position, right? The corporations are in the lead position. So I think we've probably yeah. even gone past fascism. We're just at corporatocracy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very much
0: so. All right. So you know, uh, when, when
1: your government has no capacity to regulate corporations. What are they? What are they there for? It's one of the principal purposes of having yeah. democratically elected government is to regulate corporations.
0: That is that is a very very key question, isn't it? What hmm. are they there for? What what is the function of the state if it is not actually defending the citizens against you know what? as uh, uh, like you're you're probably familiar with Robert Hare, the the sort of the leading world expert on on, on psychopathy um, that. He he said, you know, corporations really fulfil the technical definition of a psychopath, yeah. right? So you've yeah. got the psychopathic yeah. entities. What is the function of the state if it's not defending the population against the psychopaths?
1: Well, the, the question, yeah, if you're asking the question, what is its function? I mean, that's pretty. That's easy to d- define. But what the, probably the broader question is: why is it not filling that function? Why is it not performing that function? Mm. You know, we and there's evidence all around us that it's not doing that. And I think you know the co- the, the years we've lived through with COVID were the light bulb moment for so many of us. Yeah. That t- just how deep that corruption runs.
2: Yeah, and um, that's
0: that's the that's the silver lining on the dark COVID cloud, isn't it? That that more people so. are being grabbed by the scruff of the neck and yeah. sort of slapped.
2: <laughs> way, yeah. to say, yeah. you know.
0: However, because because you know, Australians are sort of notoriously cynical about our politicians. We 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 just we we've always assumed that they were they were pretty corrupt. It's like, oh, well, what do you do? They're just politicians, right? Can't expect hmm. behaviour from them. But now it's like, oh my God, they're not just yeah. kind of the level of corruption that that you assumed before. <laughs> they're, they're so, yeah, it's, it, it's
2: it's nice a degree
0: though. of corruption that yeah. that is that is absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's not even it's not even hidden anymore. It's just so in your face.
0: It, it is. It is. And speaking of in your face, how is how is that for a little segue? So speaking of <laughs> in your face, our second yeah. story for the day involves um, an Australian comedian uh, <laughs> by the name. It. Yeah, good old Isaac. So yeah. so you have some familiarity with this story. Um, so, oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is on Rebel News of course. As as always we'll be sharing all the links to these stories in the show notes. So YouTube star Isaac Butterfield has been ordered to appear before the Queensland Human Rights Commission after a single complaint, a single person watched his um uh little segments of his live comedy show which he'd uploaded to Instagram. So they made a, a a complaint, just one complaint, to the Queensland Human Rights Commission. And now, uh, poor old Isaac has to front up and uh, explain why he told jokes. Now, um, yeah. look, the, the the jokes involve Indigenous people, and obviously, uh, some people are going to to find these jokes in poor taste. And I would say that is true of of pretty much all comedians. Mm. I mean, um. The thing about comedy is that there are going to be some comedians who who make you laugh and you find that their their humor is is like it, it hits it, it tickles your funny bone. And other people will hear that exact same comedian say, doesn't do it for me. And you know, that as far as I'm concerned, is 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 life in a free society. You don't like yeah. that comedian's jokes? Don't go to his show. You yeah. know, don't watch him on YouTube. It's perfectly simple. You don't like the fashion they're selling this year? Don't buy it. You don't have to wear it. But yeah. yes, so um, uh, Isaac got a, a, a very official um, letter from the Queensland Human Rights Commission. So the complaint was submitted by a single person who alleged that Butterfield's jokes constituted public vilification based on race, religion, sexual identity, sexuality, or gender identity. Okay, so Michael, I I sense you have some
1: some views. I, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with uh, I'm very familiar with Isaac Butterfield. I've been following him for a few years. Do you know him, Brienne? Uh No, I don't know, him, but
3: I heard oh, a, a story.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I had never know.
0: heard of him before. The oh, really? Oh, okay. No, okay. no, yeah, it's
1: no, look, all
2: I, news I, to me. Yeah,
1: because I follow him. I saw this when it broke, and um, he he's. He's done a couple of docos actually just about his personal life and he's, he's, he's an interesting character, but his humour is not for everybody. There's no two ways about that. But he does tell some stories of, of doing um, his comedy in Indigenous communities mm. with this same material. He said they laugh harder than anyone.
2: Yes. You know,
1: it's people can laugh mm-hmm. at themselves. Yes. People do see that stereotypes Sometimes are there for a reason.
0: At the best tellers of Jewish jokes are Jews. Yeah, you yeah, know, get, yeah. Get yourself a. Mark. I mean, who who made who made those classic comedies of the what was it the eighties or the nineties? Like world was started? it well, Blazing,
1: Blazing Saddles is the classic. You know, you, I only watched it a couple of years ago again, and it's like, man, you could not make that today. And oh, Tropic cool. Thunder is another one. It's yeah. just so raw.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah. Funny.
3: I think like what's been happening in society I've noticed especially over the last few years is we're trying to create so many rules of what you can or you can't discuss all the things that are like oh you don't go there like you don't we don't talk about that or we keep mm-hmm. that like hidden. Yeah. but we don't discuss certain things it, it's just there's always like a pain or something that's hidden behind it that it's it's triggering in people and that's why they don't want to talk about it. But if they just pretend the pain is not there and they don't actually address what what it's bringing up for them, then they're never going to heal that. And And it's a good thing to get triggered by something because it's showing you where you're still, like, being affected by something outside of yourself.
0: Yeah. Yeah very very uh, points very well made and I, I think we only one one of the functions of the comedian is is to find that sore spot and make a joke about it when people oh. laugh they relieve yeah. and I'm sure Michael just just to just to pick up on the point yeah. that, that you made before that Isaac actually goes to aboriginal communities yeah. and tells jokes and they laugh right yeah. why do they yeah. laugh because he's relieving tension because he yeah. says things mm-hmm. and like as as far as I can see the, um, the 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 job of the comedian is 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 to walk up to that line right it's it's that line between what's considered in good taste and what's considered in bad taste and the comedian's job the comedian's job has always been even back to the days of the of, of the court jester the comedian walks up to that line and then says watch me step over this right oh <laughs> and then the, the comedian can tell and and um again i didn't know anything about isaac and, and, until i read the story but he's yeah, he's a stand up comedian. Okay, so a stand up comedian gets up on the stage and it's, and boy, that takes some, some cojones, right? And the stand up comedian does, again, goes up to that line and then says, watch me walk over this. And then the stand up comedian is looking out at the audience, gauging the audience's reaction. Okay, now if the audience laughs, the comedian goes, okay, I crossed that line, but I didn't go too far if the audience just goes oh, you know that was if, in other words if a comedian dies on stage chances yeah. are they went too far over that line right yeah. and it wasn't tension reliever it was it was actually that that kind of that that point where people squirm more than they laugh yeah i think about george carlin who yeah. um was it wasn't a comedian in the sense that george carlin didn't tell jokes he just, he just described the world as as it yeah. was, and people laughed, right? And they yeah. they they squirmed and they laughed. But but Carlin found that magic that magic blend between the squirming and the laughing. Um, yeah. Whereas there are some comedians who they that they, they don't get the balance right. You just squirming and going, "Oh my god, I can't believe he just said that." <laughs> yeah,
1: the, yeah. Look, I I like stand up comics, and and I. Isaac is certainly very good, but he is not for everyone.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But and, and that is true of, yeah. of, of comedy across the board, yeah. right? Um, in, in the same way that that people like different bands, they like different styles yeah. of music. Punk is not for everyone. You know, yeah. heavy metal's not for everyone. So again, if you don't like it, don't don't go there. Um, so yeah, but what so what kind of what, what, is, what, what does this forebode when someone who tells jokes that, that you
4: know,
0: racial groups can actually be hauled before the Human Rights Commission to answer for himself? I well, one, like the,
3: the Human
1: Rights... Sorry, sorry. go on, Bia.
3: Oh, Sorry. <laughs> I was thinking, like, if they make the rule for one thing and they start restricting what can and can't be said... Where does the where does that end? You know, as soon as they've got permission to say, oh, this just can't be talked about," <laughs> yeah. then what else are they going to add to that list? Is, it'll just become never ending, and then soon we'll be walking on eggshells constantly. Yeah, well, that, exactly. Talk about anything.
1: It's, it's the walking on on eggshells, which is is difficult. And I think, you know, my generation, I'm nearly, you know, I just turned fifty nine. Fiona, you're obviously a lot younger.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, your generation, what you're dealing with, and what is acceptable to say publicly and what's not must be mind-blowing i've got uh, a 19 and 21 year old daughter and it's been interesting watching them over the last five or six years and you know what they they've come to the understanding now what i was trying to tell them five years ago now they get it it's like everyone's so sensitive you can't say this you can't say that and it's beyond ridiculous i think what's interesting about isaac's case is it's one person one complaint yeah. and who knows the psychology of that person they could genuinely have been offended by what you said no issue with them being offended but, but then
3: it's like it's scaring everyone else out of speaking freely you know because yeah. you're like oh if just one person doesn't agree with what i have to say yeah. then i might be in trouble <laughs> And yeah, I know, a, like
0: absolutely. And this this is very reminiscent to me of of uh, Stasi of, of how the Stasi operated in East Germany, and also mm. how the um, uh, how how the Soviet system operated. Well, really, you know, throughout the entire Soviet mm. Empire, where um, I, I think it's uh, some remarkable figure. I think one in three uh, people in Germany were Stasi uh, informers. Yeah. Yeah. And and so what that meant was that like you never knew whether your your brother in law your your wife you know your colleague at work was a Stasi informer, and so people were never at liberty to to speak freely. And this, of course, how just how widespread the Stasi informer network was was not revealed until after the war came down, and 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 there were all sorts of. Um, I suppose, inquiries and revelations of, of, about this network of informers. And, you know, there was one one case that I heard of where uh, a woman who'd actually been, she'd she actually served time in prison for something that she said, and uh, and she never knew who jobbed her in. And then she went into this commission to find out who was the informer, and um, it was actually her partner who she was still living with at the time right yeah. so so what what happens then when when people get too frightened to even crack a joke to even say something which let's face it might be in poor taste because who hasn't who hasn't um, made a joke about some stereotype whether it be yeah okay here's one for, for you michael I, I presume you are a, an <laughs> italian heritage. Yeah,
3: yeah who hasn't
0: made a joke about italians talking with their hands right <laughs> yeah. including italians it. for god's sake <laughs>
1: yeah absolutely you know and I, there's a great Italian comedian called Joe Avati and I went to. It was probably about 15 years ago now. I went to a night that he was doing, and it was hysterical. It was just yes. full of these Italian people. You'd never seen them laugh in their lives, and they were on yes. the floor.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, um I when I was at high school in the in, in the 80s, uh there about a third of the um of the student population was uh was Greek or Italian, mostly Greek. And this this was the era when there are a number of really, really funny um um, comedy series like wogs out yeah, yeah, and yeah. and they, they there was this whole kind of um playing on the stereotypes of, yeah. of greek girls with the hair out here and and all the hairspray and like we laughed really hard because that was how the greek girls wore yeah. We're like they they brought hairspray to school in their backpacks and they'd read yeah. you their, their mm. hair on a, and so you know where we laughed and they laughed they laughed because it was funny Right yeah. and and now and now you're not allowed to laugh at, at jokes about you know Greeks with, with, with teased hair or Italians talking with their hands um, um, or I think you we're know. like
3: losing the ability to laugh at ourselves and yeah. you need that to get through life
0: yeah which is why jews tell great jokes i mean jewish humor is 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 really hilarious it's dark humor and it's that jewish sense of humor that that has you know gotten through well you know millennia of tragedy so yeah um there there were i i did i did have a little bit of a squeeze about what isaac butterfield has got himself into into trouble about before and uh so he has he has um uh he has been uh he, he has said some some things that are, let's say, frowned upon before, including some some jokes about the Christchurch massacre. And again, I mean, you could say, okay, it's not funny to to laugh at, at tragedy like that. On the other hand, when a tragedy has taken place and and people have a lot of feelings about that, sometimes they actually do need to to laugh, to relieve that. And it's kind of like, you know, when you go to a funeral it's usually very serious and there's, there's you know, eulogies about all the good qualities of the person who died. Yeah. Then you go to the wake and people start telling funny stories um, yeah. about about the person who died and you're like, oh, I, should, mm-hmm. I probably shouldn't be laughing because this person's dead. But but it, it's a necessary part yeah. of how people move on from, yeah. from things that are really sad. So It's opening their
3: hearts up again, you know, because it's hard when you're experiencing pain, your heart closes down. So the laughter helps to open you back up again.
1: Yeah, um, I, I, I did go to a funeral that was actually hysterical, and uh, he was a guy I knew for many, many years well, since I was a kid. And his son gave the eulogy, and he, his kids gave the eulogy, and it was, it was absolutely hysterical, exactly the way his dad wanted it to be. Everyone was laughing their heads off.
0: That yeah, that was, brings that brings to mind um, the eulogy that that John Cleese gave uh, at Graham Chapman's funeral. And he, um, I'm not sure about the censorship rating of our podcast, so I'll, I'll bleep myself, but <laughs> he was determined to be the the first person who said the F word at a funeral, and he did indeed say the F word <laughs> at Kate Chapman's funeral. <laughs> um, um, and and he's, uh, yeah, John John Cleese's kind of funeral, um, I'm not even quite sure if you should, if you should call it a, a eulogy, but but it is absolutely hilarious. And people cracked up. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: So um, I think well, Isaac see how he turns out, eh? <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I'll certainly be following um, Isaac's case now. And my goodness, I, I suppose it's if if some sort of I, I don't even know what power this human rights commission has to like sanction him, tell him he's not allowed to to, to tell jokes about certain ethnicities. Like what what the heck is is likely to happen to him? But Yes, if I don't know the
1: value. I don't know the value of the value of human rights commission that had nothing to say about people being mandated for medical experimentation.
0: Yes, yes, but it's okay for them to to yeah. accept, because they didn't have to act on this complaint, as you pointed out before. A single yeah. person sent in a complaint, yeah. and yeah. so they they made a conscious decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're quite right, Michael. Where the heck were they when people were being yeah. uh, coerced yeah. into taking an experimental medical yeah. procedure at threat of losing their jobs, you know, not being able to finish their degrees, all sorts of disgustingness. Yeah. Speaking of disgustingness, let's talk about um um about the the safe and effective jabs. And we have <laughs> we have, I believe, uh, so we do have a a short clip to play. And I have my fingers to see if I can um, go ahead and share my my screen here. Okay. So fingers crossed the the check will work out and away we go. Back on
2: his feet after a harrowing ordeal. All I did was go and take a vaccine. Now Chris Nemeth is fighting for justice. I couldn't walk. I couldn't work. The once healthy 49-year-old became wheelchair-bound after developing a chronic neurological disorder called CIDP. He says the symptoms began two weeks after having his first AstraZeneca vaccination in 2021. They included headaches, tingling fingers, facial palsy and stolen mobility.
1: I was paralysed completely from the waist down.
2: Mr Nemeth is still unwell and claiming millions of dollars in compensation under the federal government's COVID-19 vaccine claim scheme. He's one of more than 3,000 unlucky Australians maintaining COVID vaccines made them ill.
3: We've just had a settlement of
2: $2.2 for a very deserving applicant. Tanya Nielsen is helping 100 injured Australians claim for rare but recognised vaccine side effects, like heart issues from the Pfizer vaccine and Guillain-Barre syndrome from AstraZeneca. Over 12 months in which to get an outcome. And these are applicants who might not be able to work, um, so they don't have an income. So far, the claim scheme has paid 147 people $7.7 million, with more than 2,000 applications in progress. Chris Nemeth wants interim payments and a simpler system. The scheme closes early next year. Jackie Quist, Seven News. Mm. Sorry,
0: apologies. Let me just pause that. Okay, great. Um, not not great. Not great for the people who are suffering. So uh, very rare side effects. They're so rare. They're so terribly, terribly, terribly rare. Uh, do you know anyone who's who's been um, affected by one of these terribly rare side effects, Michael?
1: Uh, Yeah, Briony, i would never asked you your opinion on this subject.
0: (laughs) Um,
3: Yeah, I I know quite a few people who know other people who have either died or, like, having heart conditions or um, their children. I have just recently found out that a friend of a friend's child, she got vaccinated and her child is now very, very unwell and they're trying to fix it with more vaccinations. Um, Yeah, it's... (laughs)
0: The insanity never yeah. ends. Okay, so so you, as one person, know you're through your network multiple people. This is not rare, is it? It's, it's not, not rare. rare. How about how you,
1: Michael? Fun. What's
0: what's your yeah? Moment?
1: Look, I I'm the black sheep of my family. I'm the official anti-vaxer of the family. <laughs> and, and until COVID, I was. You know, I I lined up and had anything shot in my arm. The doctor told me to take. I booked in three times to have this and was talked out of it by people that i knew and so glad that that they managed to do that but you know at work last week there was a guy sitting opposite we we sent a guy off site to have his heart checked out in the hospital in the local hospital and the guy opposite me was talking he said yeah i experienced something like that he was talking to someone else i just overheard the conversation yeah i experienced problems with my heart after i got vaccinated and i couldn't resist i stuck my head over the over the parapet and i said look mm. bloke that usually sits next to me had his vaccine all his toenails fell off the following week mm. and he's still got issues which he hasn't really discussed one of the guys on site's cousin died the day after being vaccinated a young guy he's 30 I'm sure that
0: was a coincidence though michael he was he was just gonna oh to- no no people yeah. are beyond
1: believing it's a coincidence. Anyway, this this fellow I was talking to, and then I related my story of, you know, losing my job and career and all the rest of it, and he looked at me, he's about the same age as me. He said he made the right choice.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I saw So it,
1: I, people know people are starting to talk about it.
0: Yeah, they are starting to talk about it. And I'm I mean, look, uh, it is just absolutely gut-wrenching to to see the degree of suffering i'm a health practitioner so you know i'm seeing um people injured by these experimental Mm -hmm. transfection agents and the degree of injuries and just the impact that they're having on people's lives i mean the majority of people that that i'm seeing are unable to work so they haven't worked for in in some cases um you know over a year because they're so badly injured are they don't necessarily get support from family members. They're being, you know, gaslit by the doctors, even when the doctors admit that this was vaccine injury, they don't report it. So we don't have accurate. I mean, I seriously doubt if, if, any more than than one in 40 or one in 50 of these adverse reactions are, are being reported. I wouldn't be surprised if the reporting rates were much lower than that because not mm. a single person that I've spoken to who suffered an injury has has told me, yeah, my, my doctor reported it. Mm. So uh, we have no idea how many people are being affected, but this whole notion that these adverse reactions are, are rare is is just an absolute load of toss. And, and we know from the from the analysis of the of the uh, clinical trial data that was submitted by Pfizer, Moderna, and um, I believe J and J, in order to get approval for their products, that there was a there was a one in eight hundred serious um, adverse reaction rate. One in eight hundred. That's not rare. That's hmm. not rare.
2: No. So
0: that means that, that, you know, with the way that people are, I suppose, socially networked these days, just about everyone knows someone who's been hmm. seriously injured. Um, and okay, these people deserve compensation, but who's paying the compensation?
1: <laughs> yeah, well.
0: That would be us. Yeah, this is a taxpayer fund scheme so companies still have complete immunity they 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 are free from legal liability so we we got we got stung so the australian government used our money to to actually contribute toward the research and development of these shots then they they used our money to propagandise us. Um, there was they, they probably spent more than this, but the last time I looked at the numbers, they 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 budgeted I think twenty four million for the propaganda campaign to persuade people to mm-hmm. to take the stuff. Then they use our money to buy the shots, and then they use our money to compensate the people who were injured for the shots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yeah, going back to what you said before, Michael more about like, actually running the country.
2: There you have it.
1: It's all money.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, it's a, there's a great, uh, it's a great series, I think it's on Disney, called Dope Sick. It was made by Michael Keaton and he stars in it. It's just a fascinating story about what happened with the, uh, the opioid. And, and, it, and it's a perfect, it could be any drug, but it's a perfect explanation of how the system works for the companies that create the drug, manipulate the approval process and just tell lies and get massively rich, you know, in the process. It's such a interesting, yeah, and it plays out all the time everywhere. Yeah. yeah.
0: And yeah. of course those 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 companies, they pay for the lobbyists who then get the politicians to pass the legislation yeah. that's favorable to their industry. And and if you want to
1: understand it all in one place. <laughs> Oh,
0: yeah. magnificent book! I just yeah, started reading
1: good. it. Yes, I just started reading it yesterday.
0: For, the, for those for for whom that isn't focusing well, it's the real Anthony Fauci uh, by Robert F Kennedy Jr. Yes. So, uh, buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, don't, very well don't, 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 don't Buy yeah. the book, okay? Give this yeah. give this man well not give this man some money, but give his organization
1: some money because well, all just edu- just it, it's one place that you can get it all yeah. in problem. one place about how it all worked.
0: And so densely referenced I mean how yeah. many yeah. how many a hundred or yeah. thousand footnotes yeah.
2: are into that book it, yeah. uh, um, yeah.
3: I heard a story as well just recently I haven't looked into it so I don't know how like factual the all is but um in the realm of like corporations not really being held accountable for like what they're doing um Johnson and Johnson they had like a company I think it was a shell company and they were selling a product for a baby powder for, like, um, children and mothers actually sued that company and won a lawsuit against it because it was really affecting the children. Um, I don't know to what degree.
0: It was asbestos contamination, which they'd known about for decades. Yeah,
3: Yeah, and they just basically dissolved that shell company and had not been affected at all. So even though they won the the lawsuit, I don't even know if they'd gotten any kind of proper compensation or anything from it. And yeah. the main company that actually did it—it's just continued running, which is just Absolutely.
0: horrendous. Absolutely, um, and they—they—they they, they get off scot-free. I mean, they, these little these little fines are basically just a slap on the wrist for for a corporate behemoth. I mean, yeah. it's it's just the cost of doing business. It's so well, you know, it's like you, you know you pay the mafia protection money so that you can run your business. I mean, they are the mafia. Yeah, and so it's just it's, I mean,
3: it's all focused on. You can see where they're operating from then it's all about profits. There's no, like, humanity in what they're actually doing. They don't genuinely care about who they're providing product to or the quality of that. It's just, oh, how much money can we make from
1: this? Yeah, again, which, the, 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 you know, which is the way corporations are set up.
0: Yeah, the corporation is a psychopathic entity. It, it it doesn't have any obligation to uh, you know to serve the community. It it just has to deliver shareholder value. And again, right. like you said before, Michael, the proper goal, a uh, uh, proper role of government is to have efficient regulatory bodies that are not subject to regulatory capture, so they can actually you know clamp down on this psychopathic behaviour. I mean, I, I really, to to me. The, uh, the only way to solve this problem is, is to rescind the whole notion that a corporation, um, like we have to dissolve the, the legal fiction of the, of, the, of the corporate person, right? In other words, mm-hmm. rather than saying, oh, well, the corporation did this, um, so we're going to find the corporation. It's like, no, the person who made that decision has to mm-hmm. be made personally liable. They pay the, the compensation to the victim. They go to jail. They do time for it. It's not just will we find the corporation, right, this sort of fuzzy entity.
1: Oh, yeah, look, there's a there's a whole range of ways that you can effectively regulate corporations to get them to do the right thing, but that takes a lot of political will um, and it's not forthcoming from the same people that are sponsored by the corporations to get into the roles that they have.
2: You nailed so, it. <laughs>
0: Never going to get the necessary reforms no. out of out of the the, the politicians. who are in the back pocket of the corporations. I mean, well, you know what? Here's,
1: here's the thing that I used to say when I was talking around the place with Peter. It's like it is actually very simple. Not easy, but it's very simple because the power of the corporations is concentrated in two hundred in Australia. I think it's two hundred and twenty-seven. That's the number of people in Parliament, and so. Those 227 people are controlled by the corporations through party affiliations and through donors and, and all the rest of it. All we really need to do, and it's not even 227, it's half that, so let's call it 114 to get a majority in the Parliament and the Senate. We replace 114 people and we, really, and we change everything. That's what we are got to work towards in the next two years is, you know, 114 people... Yeah, what our government is currently is the legislative arm of corporate um, entities. They pass the laws that these corporations want. That's why they can pollute. And this is one of the fascinating things about Robert Kennedy. I really had no knowledge of the guy until this this moment. Hmm. You know, he's been fighting these corporations his entire career in in the US to make sure the corporations that produce things don't dump their waste in the river.
0: They don't externalise their costs and have mm-hmm. have the rest
1: of society buried. Exactly, you know, yeah. you you, you privatise the profit and socialise the cost. Yep. You know, and we're maybe, the ones who pay for the cleanup. Sorry, it's,
3: it's so important as well for us, like to know that we can contribute to improving this. Like, we need to find the companies that are doing the right thing and start supporting them you know, yeah. purchasing yeah. from them and actively like, yeah. looking to what are you actually doing and how are you actually doing it? Because even when I started looking into how I was going to do the app or how I was maybe going to fund it, I made a decision not to to find some like, people to fund the, the app. I basically all self-funded it because I didn't want it to be driven by profit because I know how much that can affect yeah. what you're actually providing, you know, and there's so many companies that are, a very small, like
2: run by people
0: who, for the right reasons that are trying to like make a difference. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's um that's really fantastic, Brianny, that you because that, that's a hard choice, right? It's a hard choice to to eschew funding which which might have sped up your project or or um you know perhaps resulted in a in, in a huge windfall for you. But but you stuck to your principles. So yeah, hats off to you. Um, now, our final story today: trouble in Britain. So, we have got a rash of of uh, myocarditis cases in babies. In babies, for heaven's sake! I mean, who had even heard of myocarditis before the rollout of the extraordinarily safe and effective jabs? Do you ever heard of, of myocarditis? Did you have any friends who suffered myocarditis or pericarditis? Michael, you're you're of a you're of a certain age. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: no, I, well, yeah. I mean, we all know people have uh, issues with you know, their heart and all the rest. Of it. My, you know, my my young brother had not myocarditis, but yeah, long story. Won't go into it. But yeah, people of of my age, yeah, you're starting to worry about your yeah, heart health and all the rest of it. And certainly,
0: yeah. Doesn't. But what you're worried about is having a heart attack, you know, having yeah. a sudden angina. Myocarditis, formerly was, was was extremely extremely rare. Not
1: something I'd even heard of.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah and now and now we're we're supposed to think that it's normal for yeah. for kids and teenagers and, and young adults to have myocarditis. So here's our story it's from it's from the UK telegraph baby dies and nine more admitted to hospital in unusual cluster of heart infections unusual yeah no mm. kidding WHO warns of a surge in severe myocarditis a potentially deadly inflammation of the heart in south wales and southwest england now one baby died further nine 90 minutes to hospital and okay now here's i i want you to i want you to listen very carefully for the name of the virus that's implicated right and then we're gonna have we're gonna have a little prize to see uh to see who can make the connection okay so um A total of 15 babies, 10 in Wales, 5 in England, presented with a condition during this period, the WHO said. Of these, 9 tested positive for an enterovirus, a common pathogen which can cause respiratory illness, hand, foot and mouth disease and viral meningitis. In very rare instances, young babies can develop myocarditis. Now, so here's the prize. Enterovirus, where do you remember that being talked about before in recent history? Anyone, anyone, anyone? Catastrophic Contagion, which was the latest pandemic preparedness simulation brought to you by the good folks at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Johns Hopkins and all the people who brought you Event 201. And Catastrophic Contagion was their their disaster scenario in which an enterovirus caused a deadly pandemic that disproportionately affected young children. What a coinky (laughs) dink. I mean, you just you could not make this stuff up. <laughs> okay, so thoughts?
1: Uh, I, don't I don't know what to say, Brioni.
0: I've lost a word
1: Michael speaks
0: with Brioni. <laughs> I mean, yeah,
1: that's a thing, take
3: advantage. I, I think I, when I had a read through the article, I think I saw something about them mentioning it's like a, a dormant threat that exists and try to make it seem like it's something that's always there and like it's only just now that they're becoming more aware of it. But I think, like, sh- surely something has triggered that then if it's always been there. There's something that's activating it now for these cases to be rising.
2: <laughs>
0: that, yeah. That's such a good point. That's such a good point. So enteroviruses, the, these are, uh, th- this is a sort of large, you might call it a family of viruses, I suppose, with with many, many different members of that family, including polioviruses. And these these viruses, um, they, they just, they're just part of the human microbiome, right? So in the same way that we have, oh, you know, all sorts of rhinoviruses and, and coronaviruses and whatever the heck, up our snouts and and you know, in, in various body cavities, we have all sorts of bugs who just do their thing and 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 very rarely are associated with with causes of illness and/or or with cases of illness, I should say. And then um, periodically one or the other of these viruses will, will kind of get the upper hand and, and result in symptoms. But but usually, I mean, for, for anyone who's ever... Um, suffered a head cold or or a flu or whatever have you, they could usually sort of trace it back to, oh, you know, I hadn't slept well for a few nights, I had been traveling, I'd been super stressed, I hadn't been looking after myself. I had a big night with my friends. Um and then and then you wake up the following day and you've you've got the dreaded Lurgy. In other words, there's some precipitating event that that causes you to become susceptible to hmm manifesting symptoms of illness uh, which is attributed rightly or wrongly to one of these viruses inside you getting out of hand and, and that's that's um, so one of the other viruses that they mentioned here um uh somewhere oh maybe no i think it was in in one of our secondary sources for this story uh so they're also talking about um Coxsackie viruses being found in these in these children who were seriously ill now many years ago i uh, came across an article, in uh, which, which described a peculiar case of of myocarditis, or a whole series of cases of myocarditis that occurred in Cuba, that were associated with a uh, a variant of a Coxsackie virus, that normally just caused common cold symptoms or maybe, you know, maybe a bit of diarrhea and exceptionally common, but it was found to be associated with with cases of heart damage in, in Cuba. And the 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 epidemic was solved when vitamin and mineral supplements were delivered mm. to the population. And it turned out that deficiencies in certain nutrients uh, actually caused this virus to mutate into a form which rather than just causing people to be snotty for a few days, actually damage their hearts. So yeah, you really put your finger right on it, Briony. Something has changed in the um environment of these babies that's actually causing these viruses to to um um to result in, in illness. And what could it be? What could it possibly be?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Any guesses? <laughs> so we we do have we do have a second second video uh fairly short clips so let's let's see whether uh whether gel big might have some ideas about what's going on here no take deals. it away take it away
5: myocarditis Whoops. where did we hear that before we know that that was a side effect of the covid vaccines it's one of the most you know, the one that got the most press because they couldn't get around it. Now, all of a sudden, it's happened to infants. It could have possibly be the vaccine in minds. It's an enterovirus. Let's look at their investigations into enterovirus and why are they looking at it? When we look at enterovirus studies, this is what they say, the suppression of the toll-like receptor 7 dependent type 1 interferon production pathway by uh, autophagy resulting from enterovirus 71 and coxsackie virus A16. These are the hand, foot, and mouth disease we all hear about. Infections facilitates their replication. I just want you to pay attention to this toll-like receptor part. Enterovirus 71 coxsackie A16 is the primary agents causing hand, foot, and mouth disease. These findings suggest that an increased EV71 A16 replication uh, may lead to suppression of the toll-like receptor 7 mediated interferon 1 signaling pathway. So it's suppressing this whatever this toll-like receptor is. There's More headlines on this enterovirus. This is all gonna, I'm gonna sum this up, it'll make perfect sense. And now we're talking about toll like receptor three. Before it was seven, now it's three. Same thing related to enterovirus. So it's it's, it seems to be suppressing these toll like receptors. There's another article, it goes on and on and on. I could show you all these articles on enteroviruses suppressing toll like receptor seven, three, four. Where have you heard this before? If you've been watching the high wire, you would know that the COVID vaccine was designed to suppress your toll-like receptors, specifically seven, three, four, why? Here's why, because when they were trying to make these mRNA vaccines, right, they were taking this foreign mRNA protein, injecting it into people's bodies, they wanted to get to your cell, this spike protein, so it can make your cell into a virus manufacturing plant. The only problem is once this mRNA went into your body, your immune system, because these toll-like receptors, by the way, the toll-like receptors are like the centurions, right? They're the guardians of the gate of your your white blood cells. They're the ones that notice that there's a a, a foreign invader, a cancer cell, or a virus, or a bacteria, and they call in the warriors and say, kill it dead, it's attacking our body. These are your centurions, right? Your toll-like receptors. Well, these toll like receptors were noticing the mRNA being injected in the vaccine and attacking it, so it couldn't get to the cells. So the geniuses that made the vaccine said, you know what it would be great if we could put your toll like receptors to sleep. Here's the genius this doctors Drew Weissman and Catalin Cariko bragged that they were able to replace the pseudouridine in this spike protein in the DNA, put a, you know, basically mutate it. So, that it would go into the body and put the toll like receptors to sleep, so that while they were sleeping, it could invade your cells and turn your cells into a vaccine manufacturing plant. Here's an article that was written about it, stabilizing the code. It goes on to say in 2005, Drs. Weissman and Frico discovered a way to protect foreign mRNA from the body's immune system. That scientific milestone would be key to the advancement of the mRNA vaccines in 2020. Their key discovery that by modifying the RNA code using a nucleoside uridine resulted in ablating the innate immune response involved toll like receptors. How does that simple removal of one letter of code from mRNA achieve that? It does so by affecting toll-like receptors, the alarm signal DNA. The key toll-like receptors affected that they bragged about are TLR3, TLR7, toll-like receptor, and toll-like receptor 8. They act as, as job is to recognize foreign invaders by way of other forms of patterns. So they have changed this virus as it enters your body. Now let's put this all together. We are hearing that we have a rise of myocarditis amongst infants. All of medicine is looking at the enterovirus, which used to not be a problem. It very rarely caused myocarditis, but now it is. And what we know about it is it tends to limit your toll like receptors seven and three. Do you see how this works? Wait a minute. Did mom, while pregnant, just get a COVID vaccine? Did we just do what the DTP vaccine did? Did we protect you from diphtheria, theories tetanus pertussis? Or maybe in this case, we know the COVID vaccine didn't protect you, but that was the idea. But has it made your baby vulnerable to other illnesses? An enterovirus that used to be mild is now causing myocarditis. With the DTP, a you know, case of dysentery used to be mild. Now it's killing kids at 10 times the rate. This is how this whole program works, and this is the problem with the vaccine program. And let me explain to you, when you're trying to look at the experts, we're all saying, well, what are the experts doing? Here's what the experts are doing. This is what they've got going on. They're working for pharma.
2: Oh,
0: gel. He's a classic. All right. So... Yes, uh, I think I think Dell did a great job there of pulling all the strands of this together. Uh, there mm-hmm. are billions of people on planet Earth who have uh, taken an experimental injection, which is messing with their immune system and is it too much of a stretch to to think that the changes in mum's immune system are going to be um, passed on to her in some way affect the development of her baby's immune system? I don't think that's that's too much of a stretch. I mean, obviously, this is a theory. It's a, it's a hypothesis. You wouldn't call it a theory. It needs to be tested. There need to be studies done on it. Who do you reckon is going to fund those studies? Who's going to be putting their hands up for that one?
1: Well, going back to an earlier earlier conversation that we had, you know, in a, in a where we have a publicly funded medical establishment, we have publicly funded universities where our where our research used to be done, until that was co-opted by corporate money, and we need to get back there. We have a publicly funded CSIRO. Australian research is amongst the best in the world, you know, and but it needs to be dedicated to finding the truth and ultimately. That's all it needs to look at. What is the truth here?
0: I think it was um, It was during the Howard era, wasn't it, when, when CSIRO's funding was slashed and they were basically told, look, you have to go tap yeah. and have to, to industry
1: yeah. To, yeah. to fund your,
0: your research. But, and that's, that's how we came up with who makes
1: that decision to slash the funding?
2: Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, um, behind
1: I... the scenes, you know, when all this kicked off and I'm old enough to have sort of, not understood it at the time, but to remember how all this happened, you know, we had publicly funded universities and they were too expensive, right? Well, we were told they were too expensive. Mm. So universities have to make some money. So they start getting into bed with corporations. Corporations give the university money, but then they put conditions on what they can look at and what they can't look at, whether they've got to sell their research and, you know, a university should be something that the society owns and it should be free of any sort of corruption it's there to educate it's there to do basic research and pure research CSIRO the same like when you say when you slash the funding of the CSIRO I'm sure that the people that were behind that decision very well understood that the position that that would put the CSIRO in having to get its funding from industry once you get your funding from industry you're beholden to that industry industry owns you the 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 way it all works is is very easy to understand how it's happened is also easy to follow and you know we i saw a quote a little while back and stuck with this we have to get well the same way we got sick this took a long time to happen we need to start taking control back of our public institutions we need to restore tr- trust in those public institutions. If we are going to do research on these things, I think the last time I was on talking to, to Mitch, we are talking about the number of anti-vaxxers in, in the country is somewhere around, if, if you call it about 10% of the population, which I think is about right, there's probably 2.5 to 3 million people in this country who would consider themselves anti anti-vax and who've never been vaccinated. I mean, I'm not them, I've only recently come away to this, but there is enough people in this country to conduct a significant, statistically valid study on what has been the impact on their life of not being vaccinated against all of these diseases. Now, the classic literature would have told us, oh, those people would have caught all of these diseases, they would have had horrible outcomes and all the rest of it, and, and also, what is the statistical um, number in that population of the people that suffer from all these autoimmune diseases and all of, and the autism and all of these other things that are anecdotally linked? Mm. It's not a difficult study to do. It's not a difficult. Do. Um,
0: Meryl Dory of the AVN, the, the uh, Australian Vaccination Risks Network, has actually um, called several times for the Commonwealth Health Department to conduct. Exactly that kind of a study, which is really easy in Australia, as you yeah. know, because yeah. every every person born here is issued a Medicare card. And mm-hmm. so all of their records, um, yeah. all their visits to a GP, all their hospitalizations, I believe all their prescriptions. Uh, linked in this central database. And then we have the Australian, immunization, uh, reg- uh, the Australian Childhood Immunisation Registry, which I believe is has now been extended to, to adults as well. So we, we have incredibly robust data sources yeah. which could easily be mined to make just the kinds of connections that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. This, this this is basically just and and the the data um can easily be anonymized, anonymized that's hard to say mm-hmm. the data can easily be be anonymized so the, the, so there's no privacy issues at stake yeah. here because no one's name needs to be revealed um but the government just point blank refuses to do this, and that's not unique because um, the American, you know, the U.S. government has been yeah. called upon to do the exact same study, and they've given the exact same response: we will never yeah. do, that. we will never do yeah. a vaccine versus unvaxxed study to, to answer these questions.
1: So, go, so going into the next next election in a couple of years' time, this is something that, that you know some of us are working on behind the scenes: is that we need to have candidates. Standing up front and center, saying, "Elect me, and we will make sure this study gets done. Mm. We will make sure that the guiding principle of your government is to follow the science—the real science, the the publicly funded science that is rooted in establishing truth." You know, to the yeah. best of I'm it.
0: Gonna, I'm, I'm going to pull you up on that one, okay. Go on. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's a he's a little 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 bit of a topic for, for uh for, for gentlemanly and gentlewomanly debate. Um I love so, a debate. <laughs> yeah, so okay, here's here's my thing. This is not original yeah. to me. Um so so I'm 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 gonna give full um um uh credit. For, for, for this statement uh, there's a very very interesting writer by the name of Matthew Crawford. It turns out that there are two interesting guys by the name of Matthew Crawford. There's one with one T who has a great oh. substack called Rounding the Earth and it's awesome and you should go and subscribe. And the other one has two T's. Now, so so this this statement uh was was actually written by by the two T Matthew Crawford. Yes. And it was fairly early on in the um in the pandemic, the scamdemic. And um, what 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 he wrote is that Um, I'm paraphrasing here because I I don't remember exactly his wording, but essentially um, science doesn't produce anything that you can follow. You know, science generates data. Science does establish facts, but policy... Policy doesn't. Policy involves people's interpretations of facts and and the various (gasps) weights that they place on certain facts. So when you say follow the science, like science doesn't lead anywhere. That now that's a direct quote from Matthew Crawford. Science doesn't lead anywhere, right? So so science can can tell you that you know these particular phenomena can be explained in this particular way, or that you know we've discovered that that substance X causes you know problem why but mm. it's still up to human beings to exercise their uh their moral reasoning to decide what to do with that information so i mean i i agree with you we, mm-hmm. we need unbiased science we need scientists doing what scientists mm. are meant to do which is use the scientific method to get closer and closer and closer to what we can call yeah. objective Um, But we still need people to take what the scientists discover and then think about that in the context of the well-being of the people who they're supposed to be serving and decide on an appropriate policy response. And um, economists were the first to say um, when the lockdowns were proposed, you haven't thought this through. Like, I'm not an epidemiologist, says the economist, um, but I, I know, like... An economist yeah. is going to. Change. We're trained to look at everything, okay, yeah. because because life is is always and 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 ever a series of trade offs, okay. Yeah. So yeah. even if it was epidemiologically appropriate to lock people in their homes, uh, which it wasn't. I mean, how are you going to stop no. no. the respiratory virus spreading? It was completely ridiculous. But even even if it was epidemiologically justifiable, it wasn't socially and economically
2: justifiable. No.
1: No, it never was. Um, but in, in the context of what we're talking about, there is a, there are some truths, and 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 the truth that we're looking for here is is giving sixty nine separate vaccinations to an infant from a to a child between the ages of zero and eighteen, causing other problems, and that's something that can be established by science. It will yeah. give us at least some data by which we can move away from this idea that there's absolutely no way that that can be causing all of these problems, which is the current zeitgeist and the current thing we're expected to swallow, which
2: is. Without, isn't true. without I mean, debating it,
0: without debating it, you, yeah, you are. Not there not allowed. needs to be
1: debate. Yeah, just there like
0: you're not allowed to debate. debate. Yeah, you, you're not allowed to debate whether whether vaccination is generally a yeah. you net know, benefit, you're not allowed to debate whether the COVID vaccine uh, as yeah, a specific case is a net benefit, you're not allowed to to discuss whether climate change is real, yeah. uh, you're uh, you're not, there's all, and, and so whenever <laughs>
2: there's a topic
0: that you're not allowed to debate, that's your clue. You need to debate that. Yeah,
3: <laughs> sure. Comes I mean, back I have... to the, like, oh, okay. thing where there's certain things that can't be talked about, right? Yep. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Yes. yes totally. what,
3: what's totally. going to keep
0: getting
1: added to that list? Mm. <laughs> yes. What no, else no, can't no, we talk there's, about? There's, yeah. There's so many topics up for conversation and, and the most important one is the right to free speech. You know, and that's what we have has slowly been eroded over many, many years. And we all felt it during during the COVID time when we've suddenly found our posts on social media being censored. Mm. I mean. I can't get on LinkedIn again for love or monies. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, that's
0: LinkedIn for God's sake. And the
3: freedom to control our bodies as well, right? And like being able to say yes or no to something without needing a reason. You know, this is that our yeah. body should be able to choose yep. what, what right. we do with it. <laughs> it's just like you choose yeah. what
0: food you put into it. I mean, there aren't mandated foods, you know. You you can choose to, to go and get your watermelon from you know someone who's growing it in their backyard. Um, or you could yeah. choose to buy supermarket it's your choice yeah Um, and as you say Michael I mean this this came to people's awareness during the uh this pandemic but it had been building up over a very long period of time and And uh, how
1: how long do you think uh,
0: yeah that's that is such a fascinating question um I okay so I'm I'm going to I'm going to answer the way that um, a very interesting character by the name of Steve Patterson Um, has has answered this question so he's formulated a thesis which i find fascinating that we have actually been in a dark age since at least the early 20th century in the sense that again there uh, there's there's been terribly corrupted science and all sorts of you know terrible ideas that that have entered uh, that that have essentially been accepted as orthodoxy since then so i'm going to say the early 20th century but heck maybe it goes back further than that
1: I think our first warning was the, uh, that famous speech that Eisenhower gave about the military-industrial complex. And I think one of the things that people miss in that speech is that it's not just the military-industrial complex in in the context of armaments. It's their control of information technologies. The internet, it, the internet itself is a product of the military.
0: DAPA, and, yep. Well, it was yeah. the ARPANET, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was a precursor of So, the,
1: the way that it, it's now being weaponized against us, you know, we, we're all familiar with, you know, the, the video fakes, I can't remember the term for it now. But, fakes. You know, yeah. Yeah, the way that, you know, your voice, your image can now be completely manipulated online in multiple different apps. If that's publicly available, it's been available to the military for at least 10 years.
0: Yeah. Yep, yep. The military always has access to technology that's yeah. well. Formed.
1: They develop it. Like, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And that that essentially like that's where our money has gone. That's yeah. where the wealth of every nation. Yeah. Has been sort of funneled off to yeah. it's, it's, it's this um uh fermentation of the the military industrial complex monster yeah. which is yeah. what we're now dealing with so well that's I, I don't want to end things on that really kind of dark, <laughs> no, so, um let's what we need
1: is what we need is inkberry so that people can actually hop yeah, yeah. over to their neighbours and have a face-to-face conversation about what's going on in their lives.
0: It's, it's uh, veggies. In, in some veggies. In all seriousness, though, this this I'm is what, what we're talking I'm about in, in terms of mm-hmm. our, our loss of power, our loss of wealth, our loss of control over our own bodies and over our speech. What we're talking about is, like, th- this is pathological centralization. And, mm-hmm. Briony, what I love about your app is it, it's a... It is a, a a highly usable tool for people to decentralize. Yeah, yeah. So decentralize. Now, on on that note, Michael, what a so so has got got you know in the works on the on the cast yeah. this a practical tool to help us decentralize. Michael, let's let's finish up with with you giving your your hints and tips for people to decentralize to take their own power back.
1: Oh, that was a question without notice. Um, look, look out. Get online and download. Oh, Go, how do you do it, Priyoni? You log, put your email address into the inkerberry app on Instagram or Facebook. Or go the on website
3: my, is Inkerberry.app.
1: Right there, you go. So <laughs> do that first off, and you'll get you'll get uh, you'll get notified when it's available. How to decentralize? Look, go and listen to someone talking about the alternative world or the awake world, if you like. Just go and listen. Just go and plug your head into what they're talking about. It may not be for you. It may not be what you want to listen to, but you'll meet someone there. I know through my coming to meet Peter Harris was through a series of very interesting little things that happened to me where I was out shooting my mouth off in public. and People said, oh, you should talk to Peter. You and him are very much alike, you know. And and it, like even Brioni being here today, I'm just wandering through this festival and I thought, wow, that's really cool what this girl's doing. Um and it plugged into something that Peter had been talking about, you know, this ultimately we need food and shelter and human connection. You know, that's we need to get back to that. And then here we are, ironically, doing this remotely yeah. through a Zoom. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a little
0: bit geographically difficult, considering that I'm in Queensland, you guys are in
2: WA. But yeah, yeah.
1: You know, no, technology is great as a tool, we need to use it for positive. Things that we want it for,
2: and not let us run our lives. Yeah,
0: yeah, and so we can make our we can make our connections in the virtual world. But then let's let's get off the internet and let's go and meet our neighbours and swap our produce and and actually start conversations with, with with people. I love this. And then just just to tie everything that we've been speaking about um, up in a, up in a neat little bow. So my tips for for decentralisation is invest in your own health. We, we are a very sick population. And unfortunately, the, the Medicare system, this notion that you can go and see a GP either free or a subsidised rate has really led to people um, seeding the responsibility for their own health, to you know, to their GP, to the to the whole Medicare system, and this is absolutely disastrous. Um, not number one, your doctor has, uh, and unless he or she is a very special doctor who's done additional training, your doctor has absolutely no idea what health is. They don't study health; sure. they study sure. disease. So, if you want to get healthy, you won't learn about that from a doctor. You you need to actually take responsibility for your own health. Eat more plants. <laughs> Go and get some fresh produce from, from your neighbor or the, you know, the person in the next town. Use the Ingerberry app. Yeah. Um, eat more, eat more plants, right, Michael? Eating more plants is yeah. a great yeah. way to, to 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 foster your your health and reduce your dependence on the system. So um, any any last words?
1: Being healthy is a political act.
0: Oh, I love it. I love yeah. it. Yeah, let's let's get a T-shirt with that one on it. Being healthy is a political act. Fantastic! Look, thank you so much for for thank you so much, Michael, for introducing us here at Stand Up to Brioni. It's it, it's it, I can see this is a uh, a wonderful connection which we're going to make the most of, <laughs> and and uh, we we shall see you all next week. Mitch will be back in the in the driver's seat uh, for our next edition of Stand Up Sits Down. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks, Brioni. Peace,
4: everyone. I regret having gotten the vaccine. I really regret having gotten the vaccine. I'm sure it's fine. But I just wish when the state told me to do something, I'd be the sort of person who said no. But it turns out I'm the sort of person who says no. Fine. I don't, I don't understand what's going on. You're telling me it's important. Okay. I, and all they had to do was say, you won't be allowed to go into pubs for like a month. And I was like, put it in me. <laughs> That's what I'm upset about, is that I had a principle temporarily. Like, oh, why? oh, if I was in Nazi Germany, I would have stood up to the regime. I wouldn't stand up to not being able to go to a pub for a month. <laughs> I would have been like, Anne Frank, she's in that attic. There, I saw her. It doesn't matter what the point of principle was, the point is I would have been a chill. And that, I have to live with that for the rest of my three or four more years before I have a heart attack. <laughs>